day, folks, and welcome to October's edition of Dante's Old South. To begin, I want to show some love and hope you will, too. Dante's Old South supports Autism Speaks of Georgia and Tennessee. And recently, we've wanted to pick up the mantle and help the cause of the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College. Now, as we jump into the show with both feet, we have a connection to the Arendt Center here in the studio. His name is Nikita Nealon. He is a poet, philosopher, working man, and novelist who's come our way by Russia. Boss, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me here. Now, to set the stage, what I always like to do is show a little piece of you, but the best piece. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you grew up and what brought you here? Uh, it's a very long road. Um, originally, I was born in Moscow in Russia, and my mom and I immigrated uh, in 1989, three days before the wall collapsed. So we kind of had this experience of uh, leaving this huge structure the moment before the structure actually ceased to be. So I think in some ways that kind of influenced my writing in a way because it's always like uh, kind of considering the both politically and personally the life not experienced. Um, but we got to have this really remarkable sort of gypsy adventure through Europe for a year. We were uh, classified stateless, literally not belonging to any country for almost a year between the Soviet Union and America. And, um, uh, and then ended up in America, in South Florida, spent there some years there, um, ended up evacuating from there, <laughs> or escaping Florida, uh, I think in 2002, went to New York for, uh, for school, and then uh, upstate New York, and back to Brooklyn for graduate school, kind of traveled all around, um, writing the entire time, um, and uh, how did I end up here? I met you. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's the 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 part that I love about hearing where people gain speed as a human being is one of my favorite parts of the show. Yeah. And what I always hear from you, and it's in the memoir that I've read that you're working on. Um, you you talk about owning the contemporary struggle of the artist, and I, I want to jump on that first. Could you tell us a little bit about your perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, it's actually so it's a continuously evolving thought. Uh, what I find like. Um, if you and I were chatting a little bit about this yesterday. I find myself more and more uh, wearing these three very different hats in my life. I have, um, I have my writing, so I'll do uh, the actual the, the actual process of writing, but also going to literary festivals, readings, things like that. And that's the one hat. I have another, which is academic. So, for example, going to the Hannah Arendt Institute this week, uh, where I'm going to be on stage with scholars, academics, activists second hat, and then I have my third hat, which is working at a restaurant as a server, uh, which is basically the way, you know, what I do to be able to allow me to do all the rest of the things. And it's kind of this uh, feeling of the three dimensions don't entirely meet and sort of watching my own process of allowing myself to start to talk about the other dimensions in each. Mm-hmm. So like kind of uh, overcoming the shame, I think that a lot of artists experience in, t- in, sh- in talking about like, the different hats we have to wear in order to live our lives. Um, and I think, there's, um, I think there's a lot to be gained about us bringing that kind of a conversation into the open. So it's something that I'm starting to do now more and more both in my writing and when I actually go to things like this, for example. And from the same discussion that we had earlier, um, some of those things that, that, that it's almost, if you're not downloaded with this somehow mystically, there's the shame involved that you don't know. And we're talking about 
you know, how about going, how about going about, how to go about getting health insurance? And, uh, like, what does you know, a 401k look like? What does retirement look like? Um, you know, back, you know, down to how do you find an, an honest agent? Well, what can an agent do to you? They overlap, but there's, a, there's, there's so many real-world skills that uh, if, if, if you're going to treat art as a vocation, these are, these are natural parts of any other. So it, it shouldn't be avoided in, in the art world either. If, if being an artist is your end game, do you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that we are, um, whether purposefully or not, we're sold this idea in the beginning of an end product, right? And the end product is what so many people, including myself in the beginning, sort of just strived towards. You know, I had this vision of what it being an author looked like and was very sort of clean looking and very idealistic and was necessary, I think, at certain points in the beginning to pull me, pull me onward and keep me going in this stuff. But... Um, I think like at its maybe in the in the core of it like every art is trying to say something about our current predicament our current existence so like I find myself as a writer at this point like I cannot continue to strive towards writing honestly without speaking to like well this is what it's like to be in the world today you right. know um and um um you know exploring real life questions on the page, whether through poetry or creative nonfiction essays or fiction, I think is about like talking about what we are facing in our, like what are the psychic, what are the, the conversations we're having in our own minds that consistently grab us and keep coming back to us. Um, so, you know, as I get older, some of the conversations are like, well, how do I both continue to stay honest to what I want to do in my creative work and also create a life, you know, also have a mortgage, have a family, you know, yes. have health insurance, like, and not to feel, I think a lot of people, like, we, we, we tend, maybe especially in America, maybe other places as well, we tend to feel embarrassed about talking about this real life uh, scaffolding, mm-hmm. but that is part of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it would be nice for us to start clearing up some of the confusion, which I think starts with speaking honestly to it. I agree. And... This springboards when I when especially it resonated with me about you know how does an artist get by in the concerning predicament of today's society, but you've got some insight in that some powerful insight I think um, and you're you've worked it into a workshop you're giving uh, and have been developing. Tell us about that and where you're taking it. So the workshop um, the workshop actually is part of the reason that I'm here today and I'm actually on my in route to the Hannah Arendt Center for their annual conference, uh, which is gonna begin on Thursday. Um, the Hannah Arendt Center is a politics and humanities institute uh, based at Bard College, where Hannah Arendt is also buried. Uh, if, you know, you know, just to give a little brief, terrible synopsis of Hannah Arendt's thinking, uh, she was a political thinker, philosopher, who originally studied under uh, Eichmann. Uh, she had to escape Germany during World War II. I think she was in a, in a um, in a, in a in internment camp for a short period of time, ended up in America, and much for poly, much for writing is about how do we explore the questions of life and how do we create a public sphere where we can actually go ahead as strangers and with different uh, belief systems actually meet and consistently talk to one another about these questions and our perspectives. So there's a center. Uh, I've been a Hannah Arendt Center fellow for this year, and. Um, the the conference this year, which I believe is the 12th year they're doing it, the topic is racism and anti-Semitism. So it's literally bringing people together to talk, uh, you know, to academics, activists, um, artists, to talk about the theme in question. 
So uh, it began for the conference. I started developing this workshop, uh, which is uh, I titled Transforming Hate, a, a Perspective Leap. And the idea is to explore how creative writing can help us overcome some of our um, existing biases. So the workshop is literally geared towards people who've experienced uh, racism, anti-Semitism, or some form of hate. Um, and the idea is with their permission, they, with their consent, they come into the workshop. I have them write about... Um, write an essay, short essay, about the experience of, of, of hate, literally. Uh, and then we review that, debrief a little bit, and then the turn happens where I, they are asked to write a first-person story from the perspective of the perpetrator of the hate. Mm. And the thought there is that as a, as a writer, what I found for myself, um, I've had some experiences of anti-Semitism, both as my mom and I were traveling across Europe and uh, definitely in how we ended up leaving the Soviet Union, so I, f I found for myself when I was writing about this in my memoir um, that, you know, I, at first I began just writing, like telling the story of, well, this this experience of a little Volkswagen bug that tried to run my mom and I over while we were in the mountains of Austria walking down to a yogurt shack. <laughs> but that was like, okay, you know, it's a kind of a Wikipedia summation of that, right? But like very one-dimensional, like trying to dig deeper into that. Like there's no story, you know what I mean? It's an image. Right. Uh, then I started writing, oh, let me, what's another dimension? Well, let me see it through the perspective of my mother. Okay, second dimension. Let me see it from the perspective of myself looking at my mother telling the story and us diving into the snow. Okay, it's starting to get more dynamic, but I just wanted, to, I, wanted I, f I felt the need to push it a little bit further. So I actually asked the question, what does it look like from the perspective on the other side of the windshield? Yeah. From the guy who was aiming his Volkswagen bug at us. And that's where the story itself just completely opened up and the memoir itself opened up because it started becoming this sort of a radar of perspectives that I started applying to the work. Um, and the feeling is, is that you cannot, and I, I could be wrong with this, but this is my, my personal feeling, you cannot write a first person story uh, from somebody's perspective without feeling uh, some spark of their humanity in it, no matter how vile their actions may be. Mm -hmm. And my sense is what we're especially going through in, in, in America right now, like we are really struggling to be able to, like we are classifying people by the worst of their actions. Yes. And of their opinions. And yeah. so conversation ends in that. Mm -hmm. uh, my desire is to give a little bit more, to, to, to kind of put in action some tools, mainly for me, creative writing, of how to get us to look past that wall and see through another perspective and be able to hold a wide enough perspective to where we're like, you're not, we're not condoning terrible behavior right. by also acknowledging that the terrible behavior is done by a human. Can we yes. hold both of those? And I think the arts play, can play a very large part in allowing us psychically to do that better. Do you think <clears throat> that there is uh, a genuineness to the idea that uh, the arts can reach a prophetic level? Uh, to, the, the exercise that you're talking about, to have somebody understand the other side of a predicament, not to validate it, but to better understand humanity. Um, that's not something attained every day. Uh, the, 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 the quality that, that I hear you bringing to this project uh, is an intimate one, and you found a way to, to comfortably put that in front of people to open up. I mean, did you intentionally aim to do that, or was it, you know, is that something that, that came about because it's something you love to do? I think... Um... Well, I love the, the part of the, the perspective shift is something I love to do. Like for me that um, I think 
being an immigrant and the way my mom and I traveled through, like there was, there was sort of a constant other, otherness that I was feeling. And, you know, I walked uh, from early on, I was kind of walking with the questions, what is that person seeing, right? Because that's partially the process of simu assimilation, honestly, right? right. Uh, so, you know, the process itself was something that just came naturally to me uh, around the question of, um, um, you know, racism and anti-Semitism. I think that was, um, that was very much of a conscious choice because I've been, you know, it's, but, but it's just from looking out at what's happening in America lately. I feel like, you know, the, you know not, to, not to get too political, but, you know, in the last three years, we've sort of, I don't know if we've lost our minds, but we have revealed the fact that we, our minds have been lost. Right. And uh, so, you know, and it can be frightening because sometimes politically and I think on a you know, mass consciousness level, we're standing at a precipice where like, we don't, don't know what comes next. That's frightening, but yet at the same time, it feels like an opportunity. Right. Because we can build a little bit. You know, if we can learn to trust a little bit, if we can put some new tools for understanding consideration into practice, like we might build something cool. Yeah. Um, so it was a very conscious, you know, I'm, I'm kind of skipping away from the question here a little bit. No, but it was, not at all. It was a very conscious of like, I want to, let's just try some new things, man. Like, cause what, what's the, what's the end goal? If we keep dividing ourselves, like I, my mind keeps asking like, all right, we can go ahead and classify ourselves into the, these separate groups that cannot align, that should not talk together, that, you know, just set, stay, stay apart. Right. What's the end goal? It's just separation. Like. The end goal has to be unity in some form or another. It has to be uh, reunification. It has to be conversation. Um, and um, you know, from my end, I just, I'm just like, well, let's just experiment with some new stuff. And this yeah. is what it is for me. Now it takes a mature perspective to see that, and uh, an enormous amount of energy to pull that off. But focusing in on perspective, as an artist, and, and looking at your career from the widening the scope. How has your perspective changed from your early years to current day? Um, I think just on a, like a, on a personal, mildly narcissistic level as an artist, I think like when I started writing, which was probably 12, when I started writing as possibly a profession, uh, it was about 12 years ago. And I really thought like I had that image of how, you know, I had that highlight image, highlight reel, like, gonna write, it's gonna be awesome. I'm gonna be sitting in coffee shops, like, you know, doing this awesome thing <laughs> quietly by myself while people looked at me with mystery. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, I would start being a success, you know? And I was lucky, I was, I was fortunate enough that early on, like um, my second year writing, I wrote a story and I uh, received an award that's got me to Ireland uh, for a festival. My Second story that I wrote uh, received an award after that. So I really thought that this stuff's going to come, right? Just yeah. the, the, the magic thing we were talking about. Um, you know, I think now doing this for 12 years and how much it really takes to write, both on the, outs you know, the outside facing in terms of like how much it really takes in the world, you know, of like the decisions we literally have to make day by day of how we survive, what kind of jobs we take who we spend our time with, what family looks like, right? And then there are also the personal decisions that every artist makes in relationship to their work of like, what does it really look like to communicate honestly? Yeah. Not like fact by fact, but like to speak honestly in your art form. Um, that's been the evolution. I think like, I, you know, I'm finding myself, the changes I'm characterizing myself more and more as a working class writer, which I think I would have probably been almost a little bit ashamed to, like scared to do when I was young, I wanted to be a celebrity writer mm -hmm. first, right? Which I think so many of us do. It's like, I want that 
carrot. Right. Uh, now I am just feeling much more more connected to, you know, the life and the experience that I'm writing from and the process, the effort it requires to actually do the work. Right. You know, that's the change. Is there something you're doing today that you're absolutely surprised to be doing that was not on your schematic for the future? Yeah, well, probably, well, hmm. Uh, professionally, probably the wor- the workshop is actually it in a way. Like my involvement, um, you know, it's interesting. You f- you found me originally as basically almost a philosopher. Yes. And I don't know if I'm necessarily a philosopher. You but are. I I, <laughs> I like to think about life. You no, know, and like yeah. it's kind of surprising to me how I've ended up in my relationship with the Hannah Arendt Center. Um, and uh, you know, doing and putting something like this workshop together right now. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't think I ever thought that that's where I would be headed. Um, and, um, I think it was much safer to think of myself as somebody who would be just writing these stories in isolation and then just getting a claim from somewhere. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so professionally things like this that are more outward, like society facing, I'm surprised to find myself doing. Um, but then the second part is just like in a personal life. You know, my, um, um, you know, I've, I've chatted with you a little bit about this. My fiance and I are, I'm, I'm getting ready to get married at some point And. Uh, we're looking at buying a house and like you know establishing roots and like for years the thing that pulled me forward in life was this idea of adventure. I'm just gonna go ahead and do immersive journalism. I'm gonna jump somewhere. I'm gonna go to New York. <laughs> I'm gonna go to like uh, you know New Orleans. I'm gonna go to write about Burning Man. I'm gonna go just travel with a backpack, almost like a gypsy Sufi existence. You know whatever. That was the exciting part. That's no longer the adventure. That right. like that's all that's been done. Uh, now the thing that pulls me forward in life and really just tickles my senses. It gets me woke up. It's like, uh, I want to see what, you know, what having roots in the ground looks like. Right. Um, yeah. And I'm curious to see how like that affects writing. Right. Cause mm-hmm. like, I mean, I think you probably have similar experience how you purport poetry evolves from like, similarly as we, you know, we get older, we're like our, our creative work also goes through stages of adolescence. And, you know, then like we have like some very, f- beautiful sharp flowery like teenage writings yeah. you know like uh, whatever age we're writing them you know yeah. and then we have you know our, the writing of the 20s and career achievement and chasing you know and you can always tell that tone yeah in art so yeah well before we let you go you mentioned poetry and i know that you write it because we published it before so do you have any poetry that you'd like to read this uh yes i gotta pull it up really quick and I'm, while, I'm, while i'm pulling up i just gonna pl- with the workshop just to plug the um, i'm gonna plug the hannah Rand center one more time their conference uh i think 12th annual conference on racism and anti-semitism happens this thursday and friday uh, and i also want to give a shout out to the arts bridging community initiative at um university of washington tacoma it's a really really cool program that's utilizing the arts in form in terms of um how it applies to activism and uh, social change and environmental issues. Um, just a really, really cool grassroots program uh, uh, run by this uh, very talented painter named uh, Beverly, Beverly Natus, I believe her name. Anyway, those are my plugs. Um, but on topic of all of this, uh, the poem I wanted to read is um, titled Forgiving What You Can't. Forgive the bro- broken promises snipping at your feet, the thousand resolutions marching in the streets. Forgive the weatherman for keeping the secret of the heat. Forgive the weather, forgive your heart, forgive the snow, the sleep. Forgive your love, forgive your hate, 
your enemy, your friend, and every diplomat you've met, forgive their malintent. Forgive the weak that did not turn to honor your command and every obstacle you've sworn to punish to the end. Forgive what you remember, forgive what you forget. Even forgive this poem for forgiving what you can't. He did fantastic, and it's awesome to have you on, man. Thank you so much for being in the studio. Yeah, thank you. All right. And before we have on our next guest, we'll have Mufasa S. Sufasa by Help Computer.
And second on deck is Mrs. Mary Romero, poet, pastor, mother, and wife. How are you feeling today? Feeling good. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm happy to have you here. I like to jump in uh, sideways, and what I want to do is talk about the responsibility of storytelling and poetry. When the poetry that I've read of yours, it's blessedly um, free of cryptic nonsense and has a beginning and an end. <laughs> and I, I mean that. that. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. It makes this experience much nicer. I think for everybody involved. What do you think um, is the responsibility of the poet to um, be honest and open with their reader? Well, you know, I think... <laughs> I mean, it's a, I mean, it's a simple question, but a complicated one, too. Agreed. I mean, I think, I, I mean, Yates said, you know, we must go back to where all good ladders start. Yes. The, the foul rag and bone shop of the heart, which is, I think, where all yeah. the literature does begin, especially poetry, you know. And I think, you know, in that, in that poem, he's talking about how all the, all the forms, all the images, all the visions you know, and symbols sort of deserted him and he just had to return back to his heart. So I have found that is, that's where everything begins. And, you know, wherever it gets complicated, I think some poems, even poems that I deeply love that take a little longer to, to jump into or to feel at home with it, that's still the beginning point. You know, it's just sometimes that there's you know, Auden said, uh, was it Auden? I think said that, you know, a poet is trying to say as many things as possible and as few words as possible. <laughs> and so some of my favorite poems are ones that I do return to over and over again because they're so rich and dense. Mm -hmm. um, but they're still, but they're not trying to confuse you on purpose. Like that's, exactly, just, yeah, yeah. that's just the silliest. I, I, I really don't, I don't have a lot of love or patience for being confusing or complicated for the sake of being confusing or complicated. It's Agreed. just, that's not what it's about. And it's sad that people think that they can't read poetry because they assume that that's what the, it's like, it's this game and they're trying <laughs> to trick me. You know? And I, I feel, I'm like, no, it's okay. Let me hold right. your hand. Right, right, right. <laughs> Let's walk into this together. Yeah. You know, you know, maybe he said that way because he's, you know, there's a nuance, there's a beauty there, right. but it's not to trick you. We're not trying to trick you. <laughs> So on the note of going back to, to nostalgia and memories, um, what are some of your earliest memories of writing? <laughs> well, I, I I told Richard this in the in our in our last interview, but I, I won my first poetry contest in the first grade, actually. <laughs> so I started young. It was, <laughs> um, I think we had a prompt. We had to finish the start with the phrase if i had one wish it would be right <laughs> and mine was to travel around the world and see <laughs> <laughs> and it just it went on in such fashion from there but um i just i love words i have always loved words uh, my mom said i spent a lot of time on my back, looking up at the clouds <laughs> as a little child. Yeah, I know some of it. Yeah, I grew up in Houston, so that was kind of the only beautiful thing to look at <laughs> in the suburbs <laughs> of Houston. So I had a deep, deep love for the sky <laughs> until I moved. I moved to Vancouver when I was uh, 20 years old, and oh my gosh, I I thought 
I, I don't know what I thought. I was like, right. where has this been all my life? Right. All this beauty. Right. There is there is beauty. There's so much beauty in Texas. I, I just, it wasn't in the suburbs. It's an acquired taste. <laughs> it is an there acquired taste. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what else do you remember about growing up as a writer? Mm, I'm trying to think. You know, um, I mean, really, I think I grew up as a reader. Yeah, yeah. That's really yeah. how it began. I just, I love to read. I spent... I shared a room my whole life. So I'm the second of six kids. So I never had my own space or a moment alone. And so I can't tell you how many nights I spent curled up in the closet with the right. light on right, right. and a good book. Um, and so I think for me, a lot of it, a lot, the love of writing began as a reader, you know. Well, from the, the birth of that love to writing to today, there have been some uh, big transitions in your life. Yeah. One of those being uh, going from one with no children to one with children. Uh, yeah. What was writing as a mother? How was that transition? Oh, it was hard. <laughs> <laughs> the truth is I just didn't. I just didn't write for really a couple of years. I mean, I opened up a file and I think I had like three drafts right. for like a whole year. You yeah, know? yes. Uh, I didn't know how to do it. And then I, um, <laughs> my sweet husband saw me getting like deeper, more, more deeply depressed. <laughs> right. And one day yeah. he, he, he left, he went to the bathroom. We were eating at Taco Mamacita. He left, he went to the bathroom, he came back and he said, I just booked you a couple nights at St. Mary's in Sewanee. Do you know this place? Of it. Or, Tell okay, us about okay. it. Okay, so Sewanee is amazing. Um, I've been to the Sewanee Writers Conference a couple times before I had kids. Right. Because <laughs> you can do that. Um, and uh, there's this there's this little convent of nun, of like Episcopalian nuns, but you can go and stay there, and the place is gorgeous. And uh, they say the ghost of Tennessee Williams haunts Sewanee. And what? I, I, okay. I, I mean... I might believe it. Okay, I'm that far. <laughs> okay, all right, you have it's, my attention. I mean, I feel like anytime I go there, the veil is just thinner. Right, right, right. And right. like, like stuff just comes. It's, you know, you're ready. You're ready to write there. So that was a sweet gift. And then I found a good friend of mine who had kids around the same time. We, we did a writer's conference together. And um, we actually, we talked to this woman. And I think both of us, one of the things that stalled us both is we're like, can can we write about being a mother? Right, right, right. <laughs> can we write about our kids? Like, is that okay? That just seems like it's going to be sentimental. Like, we, you know, you right. just don't want to go there. And she was like, she said to us, she said, if you're not risking sentimentality, then you're not doing your job. There you go. And I appreciated that because it just sort of set me free. I was like, okay, I'm just going to risk it. And anything that I don't like, I can just edit it out. It's a, you know, just start writing again, right where you are. Um, and we started doing this a super fun practice where we, my friend Sarah and I, we would do what we called a seven and seven sprint. And so for every, every day for a week, we'd have to send each other a first draft by midnight. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a phenomenal practice because it taught me that I could write in the margins of my life, which mm-hmm. was really at that point, the only place that I could write, right. you know, cause life was too busy. So, I mean, there were times that it'd be like 11.35 p.m. Right. And yeah. I'd scratch out a draft. And right. then I, and then it would become the seed of something I really liked. So yeah. that was deeply encouraging and started me back, you know. 
Yeah, I do know. And, and, and that's, I mean, Nikita, I guess before you and I were just discussing about how there's a gap in adult education. And as yeah. far as, okay, you have an MFA, okay, you have the love to write, okay, you're writing. Yeah. How do you jive that career with the real world? Yeah. And yeah. what it sounds like to me is that what it, your idea, it's almost like a class you could teach mothers who want to, to write. It seems like there'd be a lot of interest yeah. in that. Yeah. Um, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, it, would that be, be it, how could mothers go about make, creating a group like you did? Like, how, how can they start that? How can they find others and, and do what you did? Yeah, I mean, that's a huge question. It's a great question. I luckily I had a dear friend from that we'd been sending work back and forth from before the time we had kids. So, mm-hmm. you know, at that season of my life, I fell back on her, and she's you know one of my dearest friends to this day. Um, finding writers in your own community, I'm still figuring that one out. Okay. You know, like, um, but partly like my friend Sarah, we're not even in the same city and that, but it's just to be able to shoot an email. I wrote wrote this to to know. I think, I think when you're in that season of life to know that there's someone that's going to read it at the end of the day, that there's going to be someone on the other end of the line is huge. Otherwise, you just don't finish it. You know, right. you, you get an idea, you write down a few lines, but you don't actually fully form the thing. You know, right. so I think, um, but yeah, for find, finding just one or two people to send your work to and say like, hey, whenever you write something, send it my way. Just I'll be I'll be I'll be the one on the other end of the line. You know, that's cool. It's huge. So the, the, now to the, the form the thing, what what things are you forming right now? What are you what's on deck that you're working and excited about? Yeah, so I am. Oh, I'm so close. I'm in the I'm in the final stages. In fact, I, I took a picture today. I so I'm I'm finishing up a manuscript, and today I had it all on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Every single poem, just trying to put them in order. But um, I've been working on a manuscript for the last probably the last year 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 and a half. Um, that's all written in the voice of Penelope, who was the wife of Odysseus. Mm-hmm. Um, which has just been a super fun way to, I've, I've loved writing in her voice. It's just right. been a way to kind of explore themes of, um, yeah, of motherhood, of, you know, being a wife, of fidelity, mm-hmm. longing, waiting, um, war. You know, there's just so yeah. much that's in, in the Odyssey. So, I mean, I take a lot of, take a lot of leeway, a lot of right. imaginative. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know? But, um, but yeah, it's been so. I'm finishing that up and hoping to send it out within a month or two. So, well, in the writing of it and finishing it up, uh, what is your writing process like? Um. Well, it's you know, <laughs> I would say it's probably equal parts highly disciplined and very spontaneous. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I I I I'm definitely one of those people. I have set days and times that I sit down and write and if I don't show up it messes me up you know right. like I need yeah. I need the the regularity the routine. and the routine yeah. and the discipline um and so I do that I probably have about 3 days a week that I have the chance to like block off enough chunk of time to do that nice and then and then otherwise it's you know it's just trying to catch snatch and grab right <laughs> snatch and grab right catch the ideas as they come yeah well as you're writing um who do you go to for inspiration and, and what writers do you return to again and again? Oh, um, 
So many. Um, I mentioned outside when we were talking, Richard Wilbur's been one of my favorites for a long time. Um, and I, I, I definitely returned to him. Um, I got to meet him, and I, it was super fun because I got to tell him. Uh, one of the way, the one of the ways that I actually met my husband was at a poetry reading, right. and I I got up and I was I read some of my own and then I said I'm going to read my, my one of my favorite poems and it was Love Calls Us to the Things of This World, by Wilbur <sighs> and Ben who is now my husband came up to me and said that's one of my favorite poems too, so I told Wilbur you I, you know you're kind of responsible. <laughs> you were there when we did. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for my marriage. So I I, I really love him. I. Uh, Louise Gluck, uh, yeah. her, her book, The Wild Iris, is Burn one that to, yeah. I go back to over and over again. Um, it's so melancholy and moody, but I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. When I'm in that mood, I go back to her. Um, as someone who kind of walks, you know, vocationally as a writer, but also is in ministry, I, I love Hopkins, Gerard Manley Hopkins. I love Herbert. I love Dunn. So the poet priests are... Mm-hmm. You know, are fun for me to return to because they had to walk that crazy weird, right. <laughs> you know, line as well. So seeing, okay, they did it. Uh, <laughs> Christian Wyman is uh, anything that he writes. Um, I'll read multiple times. I really love that guy. So yeah, those are some, a few influences that that return to me or that I return to. Well, you mentioned the walk of the poet and priest. Um, you and your husband are pastors in an Anglican church. What is it like to, to be both a poet and a pastor? Mm, it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> and in the shot. Okay. Yep, it's weird. <laughs> uh, that's probably why I'm like, okay, wait, Hopkins done. Her, those, other people did this. How mm-hmm. do they do it? Um, yeah, it's a little. It's a little strange. You feel like um, as a writer that y- you want to be totally authentic and. And open to, yeah, open to say whatever it is that you need to say. And so, you know, learning to not, I think, I think <laughs> as a pastor, as someone who like walks in people's lives, a lot of times you just have to be quiet and yeah. listen. Yeah. You know, it's not yeah. so much about inserting yourself as it is about being present to people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's sort of like, you know, having that impulse. And then as a writer, I have to sort of let myself loose. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Don't edit, you know, just just write. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, I mean, it, it can be a little strange. It can be, um, I was talking to uh, Jamie Quattro, who's, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, we had coffee the other day, and I, I really love her. And she's she's someone who, is in both of those worlds, kind of mm. in the world of faith and and writing, and it's we were both talking about sort of the difficult line of mm. walking both those roads and allowing, you know, the literary world isn't always isn't always excited about right faith being a part of your writing, um, and the Christian world doesn't always know what to do with artists. So right. it's like, <laughs> that is you true. Know, That's it's true. A, sometimes it feels like a double exile. Like, right. right. Ah, <laughs> <you know? laughs> But at the same time, it's kind of dynamic, it you is. know. It is. Having having to walk a tightrope is is dynamic, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, it's it's pretty life giving to me. Um, and also just being in the lives of other people, um, it gets me outside of myself, which yes, writers are a wee bit prone to chronic. Yes, <laughs> chronic rabbit holers. We are. Yes, yes. So it's definitely like I feel myself emerge and notice and 
um, it's good. It's good for me. It's good for my soul. Yeah. Well, I'd like you to share some of your writing with us. Would you sure, um, yeah. please read us a few poems after you tell us about your chat book? Oh, yeah. So this thing. Um, <laughs> Philizenia. So it's it, it's it's older. I this was the completion of my my master's project um, and it's called Philizenia, which is the Greek word for hospitality. Mm-hmm. It literally means love of strangers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I kind of the themes in it are I was kind of looking at there's this there's this one quote um, that St. Peter says, show the love of strangers to one another. Uh-huh. And he's, he's talking about people who know each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was sort of the theme of this collection. How do you love the stranger and the people in the world around you? Right. Um, so, yeah, that was that was Philzenia and it, it won a couple of awards and. It was it was really fun to write. It feels super old to me now. Right. You know. What's some of your new stuff? Um, yeah. Do you want me to read read yes, a few? Okay. Please. I'll I'll read one that, that isn't a Penelope poem first. Um, it feels very southern, so I thought I'd bring it. Um, this is called The Firecracker. Is it exuberance that in late autumn rips a firecracker? One ignited BB gun across the lawn. So small a rocket vanishing in the cosmos. The houses near are dark, some with a light in the kitchen. The air heavy and humid as wool, smelling of horse and humus. Late crimson leaves blown down and browned crumble when touched like burnt toast. A few tenacious mosquitoes lick between legs. Fireflies streaking only in memory or like a phantom appear ephemeral in the slate sweet heat before winter. But that firecracker from the hands of the latchkey kids of a neighbor renting down the lane and never at home, they roam at this late hour, fingers inked with the odor of sulfur, lighting for a moment their wonder, a few inches in the darkness before them. Has that one been published? No, it hasn't. Yes, it has. That's mine. <laughs> That's mine. You can have it. That's mine. We'll talk after the show. Awesome. Uh, can we have a Penelope poem now? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, okay, this is one. I think you'll want more than one. We can do two. Okay, we'll do two. All right. Um, so this is one that sh- she's talking to her son. So there's um. This is one of the motherhood poems. So um, towards the end of the time that Odysseus is away, Telemachus, her son's grown up, and he leaves her as well. So it's sort of this double leaving. Um, And so this is uh, called Telemachus, my son, after you left. Without saying goodbye, I understood why you asked advice of everyone but me. Needing to leave me was the point. I cannot fault you for thinking I would fall apart over our parting. Wholly correct and not, considering I have relinquished you since the second you abandoned my body to emptiness. Its waters evacuated to the sea to which you now return. Children always long for the sea, never knowing how it suffocates their mothers in the night. This is not to guilt you, but only to explain what you will never understand until you watch your own seed skip 
into some sea. No matter how we may so blessedly forget the first terrors of inescapable labor, cutting a body from our own, even as you nuzzled, rolled up like a bun in the small crook of your father's arm, my palm encompassing your entire back, even then my womb groaned. The body knows it is always letting go. That is good. Mm. <laughs> That's good. Thanks. Mm. Um, and then this one is called Hemerocallus, okay. which is... It's just the Greek word for day lilies, and it, it comes from the root of the word day and mm -hmm. the word beautiful. So it means beautiful for a day, which, <laughs> ah, when I read that, I was like, I have to write a poem about day lilies. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> um, so this is Hemerocallus. To say, I have been beautiful for a day. To say, now it is dark. To say, I have been beautiful, now it is dark to let darkness sheathe this moment before it fades. The way we cup the day lilies, petals ruffled, stamen saffron, gently snapping each short stem to make a bed of them beside our bed, breathing the scent of one spent day, falling limp with the night. To be as ready to close, having opened many petaled splendor, to the sun and to say what is 20 years when we can return from anything and to say enough and to say one day one has been enough that is fantastic mm. Mary thank that you. is fantastic thank you so much thank for coming you. on the show and as your book moves along the chain of publication yeah. please let me know so we can have you back on to talk about it again uh, I would love that is that cool yeah That'd be great. Right. Mary Romero, it was fantastic having you here, and I look forward to doing it again. Thanks so much. It was great to be here. All Thanks right. for the invite. And to round out tonight's show, we have Jonathan Worth, a native of Kentucky, who now lives in Chattanooga. And tonight, he's a wild man cartoonist. How are you doing, boss? Thank you. Doing well. Uh, really, really glad to be on the show. Well, I love having you on, man, and it's going to be awesome. Uh, let's set the stage for folks and give us your background. What's your story, Morning Glory? So, originally from Bowling Green, Kentucky, a proud Kentucky native. Um, my wife and daughters and I have been in Chattanooga for the past two years. Um, my background is in, so when I was an undergrad, I studied uh, Arabic and archaeology and i thought i was going to be an archaeologist right until i went on my first dig and then i realized this this is not for me sweeping dirt off of dirt right. for uh, three months a year is not really my my cup of tea right so um but yeah i'm a cartoonist i mean i've been drawing ever since i could remember um i've always loved um graphic novels and comic books and um you know i some of my biggest influences as far as uh, cartoonists go would probably be like Gary Larson. Yeah. Um, Far Side. Uh, man, I love... It's so, it's so quirky. Yeah. And so, like, just the twisted humor is... Um, I don't know. Spoke to my soul. Right. And um, But also, of course, Bill Watterson, uh, Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Um, there's just a real honesty mm -hmm. to to his work. And 
I don't know. There's, you know, there's different types of humor. There's some humor that like just speaks to. There's some humor that that speaks to like the body, like so, like sex jokes and yeah. bathroom humor. Right. And that I mean that's pretty like low hanging fruit. But, right. But no then, pun intended. Go ahead. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but then there's. I think a higher form of comedy is is comedy of that really speaks to and I don't want to be uh, I don't know to whatever but it, it speaks to the heart like yeah. it speaks to experience and it's, yes. it's it's very human I think Bill Watterson does that really well um, but yeah and then so so yeah so I'm a cartoonist mm-hmm. and um, been working on some short graphic novels which i've been really excited about tell us about those man i mean it's because it, it, it you know there have been in the nerd in me which shall live forever and reign mm-hmm. free you know when people say it's a comic book no it's a graphic novel and you know you're fighting a, a losing battle with <laughs> yeah, people that yeah, don't yeah. know the difference so i mean the, the, I, it, it excites me um having seen examples of what you do what are you doing now what, what are these I mean, i'll get out of your way man tell us about yeah, the graphic yeah. novels that you're working on yeah so um the stuff that i've been working on for the past couple of years and um I, so I, like i said i studied arabic right. and um and i've gotten to to travel to uh the middle east a little bit um and so this this combination of studying these different cultures and actually getting to experience the different cultures um has has really grown in my heart a a, a real interest especially in the, the palestinian um, Israeli conflict, which I know is super, um, uh, what's the word? Um, I don't know. There's, you're going to be on one side or the right. other. It's, polarizing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, very there polarizing. You go. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I, I guess I'm intentionally kind of poking the bear here. Um, right. But I'm conflating um, first century Israel with modern day Palestine. And so I'm looking at the stories of the New Testament of the Gospels, mm-hmm. but putting them in a modern context. So first, you know, first century Jews will end up looking a lot like modern day Arab Palestinians. Right. And um, maybe to, to poke the bear a little more, um, uh, first century Rome will end up looking like modern Israel or modern United States. Right. Um, and so dealing with, with questions of occupation, of violence, mm-hmm. of how, um, you know, I think when you start to look into to the background of, of people, of the history of the Middle East, you can, not that you condone violence, but you can begin to see, actually, I kind of understand yeah. where you're coming from. Yeah. Again, people who are in in desperate situations who feel like they have no no other recourse um, will probably turn to violence. Um, and so I think finding sympathy, <laughs> be, you know, being a bit sympathetic, mm-hmm. um, but also also showing that, you know, the violent violence isn't, won't really get you, get you anywhere. I think there's a, there's more, there are other ways to redemption. It's not an either or, right? But there's other ways to redemption. Yeah. Now, are you doing the art? Or are you doing both the the dialogue and the storyline? So, um, yeah, I'm All, right. The whole thing. Yeah, the whole thing. Nice. The whole thing, which I really enjoy. Um, there's something about 
graphic novels. Uh, and one thing I'm really excited about, just in general as far as art goes, um, is is that graphic novels, that's the one area in like a, a bookstore that's growing. Yeah. Um, I, there's really been a lot of interest yeah. um, in graphic novels. Um, and so, but, but one thing about it is that you're combining both both written word and and the picture mm -hmm. and rather than I, some people may think you're you're dumbing down both right but i think you actually have to be more more precise yeah um when you're when you're telling stories through sequential art yeah um so i i really enjoy the the genre i really enjoy um yeah i think it's it's a really fun way to tell a story well jonathan as that project moves along i'd love to have you back to talk about how it's developing yeah you cool with that absolutely all right well john it was fantastic having you on the show and we're gonna Thank have you, you back soon and pick this up again because it's it, i feel like we need to have a whole nother half just on you are you cool okay. with that we can we can do that we can feel that yeah, yeah all right man thank you for coming by thank you and that's tonight's show for y'all. As before we bow out, this is Clifford Brooks wanting to thank you for being a part of tonight's October rendition of Dante's Old South. Please remember Autism Speaks in Georgia and Tennessee, as well as the Hannah Arendt Center at Bards College. Good night. There is a fountain on a hillside by a valley will my name though with blessings overflow if the ones I miss are all my blame there is a shepherd a great good shepherd whose voice it carries over the hills. Well, son, I'm calling. Can't you hear me? Does my voice not ring a bell? There is a lighthouse O'er the cliffs of misery Whose beacon calls Weary sailors home The indecision And doubts surround me my sweet Lord won't let me go. There is a fountain on a hillside by a valley with my name, though evil for may overtake me my Savior's death will clear my name 
My Savior's death will clear my name.